That sounds good. It's great to be here. Thank you so much to, to the band and uh, you guys at the back as well, doing the PA and the words. We were at a fantastic conference last week, but I, the, the, the guys behind the scenes here do a really good job, better, better than the conference we were at. Um, so uh, I understand recently that you celebrated 40 years of Crawley Community Church. Well, I was only five years late to the party, so uh, I, I don't know what Steve has said about Helen and my background, um, but um, before we were married, um, I started coming along to this church 35 years ago, and uh, then um, started leading the youth after a little while. The Lord moved Helen to Crawley through her job, and uh, we... Uh, Keith and Maggie sort of schemed a little bit and uh, um, said to Helen, oh, I think you do well on the youth team and where I was and the rest, as they say, is, is history. <laughs> um, and uh, the Lord called us away to Bolton in Manchester. If you're not sure where that is, hope you know where Manchester is. Um, that was 1994. We thought, well, we'll maybe be there for five to ten years and... Uh, we're still there. We're still there, 24 years on, um, until the Lord calls us somewhere else, really. So home is where God wants you to be until he says it's time to move home. That's the way that uh, we see things. That's the way I think the Bible teaches things. Um, we've got two children, Ben and Ruth. Um, I can't remember the exact ages now. Helen will be able to tell me. But somewhere sort of <laughs> mid to late 20s, something like that. I have to work it out from the dates of birth. Okay. <laughs> We're, oh, yeah, I remember the name. I mean, when you go to Zambia, the men don't even remember how many children they've got. <laughs> so, so at least I know I've got two. <laughs> so uh, they're, they're doing well in God. They're doing well in life. Praise God. It's, it's, it's such a blessing. Uh, Ben's uh, got married a year or so ago. Uh, he's in Norwich. Uh, and our daughter Ruth uh, is in Bedford. Uh, and uh, so we've got an empty nest, but we couldn't keep it too empty. So we've got somebody at the church doing a year of training with us, and they're, they're staying with us three nights during the week. And uh, it's great to go around turning lights off all the time again, like we used to when Ben and Ruth were at home. You know? <laughs> anyway, what uh, I would love to speak to us tonight on this general subject of spiritual warfare uh, is this, knowing and living in our authority in Christ, okay, knowing the authority that we have and making sure that we are living lives which, which outwork that authority that God has is, is given us. So a, a fundamental question for the world and more particularly for us in our individual lives is who's in charge? Who's in charge? Because if we're, if we're under the cosh and you know, we've, we've not got power and authority, well, let's just forget about this. Let's just go and do what the world does. It's a fundamental question. And uh, so a very familiar passage to you, but I'm going to read it out again. It's Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let's pick out the relevant words here. Authorities, powers, Spiritual forces of evil. That is our battle. We've been hearing, if you haven't been to the early meetings here, you're in a battle whether you like it or not. There is no opt-out whether you realise it or not. And, and do we stand any chance of winning this battle? So whatever your battleground is, and it'll be any combination of things, whether, whether our battleground is, is personal holiness, walking with God, whether it's growing our church, whether it's reaching out into our communities... It is so essential to realise that it is not the person in front of me, primarily, that is the person I'm battling against. Whether it's that, that awkward, noisy neighbour, um, you know, whether it's a difficult boss at work, whether, dare I say it, it's somebody in church that you might not get on 100% with, that happens in every church. Okay? This is saying... Your battle is not with that flesh and blood in front of you. It seems like it is. When they're really getting up your nose and in your face, it seems that's where the battleground is. But, but no, Paul says it's not that. That is not your battle. You're loving your neighbour, but you're fighting against the spiritual forces of darkness, 
which are very, very present and active in this world. So, so victory in, in each of these areas is ultimately won or lost as we learn to recognize and confront the authorities, the powers, and the spiritual forces of evil. Right? Britain did not win the Second World War just by Winston Churchill's speeches, amazing as they were. They stirred people to fight, and the words of Jesus must stir us to, to fight. So if we don't have the right weapons, if we don't have the, the weapons to overcome these authorities and powers, please just give up and go home. But we need to know, of course, that we do, in fact, possess a greater authority than any of these things that the Bible talks about. And we need to know that we have those weapons and we need to know how to effectively use the authority that we have. It must not just be theory. We've got to know what does that look like in day-to-day life. So what I want to propose to you is that reigning, i.e. being in charge, is the Christian norm. That is the normal Christian life. Romans 5 uh, says this. I'm going to read verse 17 and then jump to verse 20. If by the trespass of one man, talking about Adam, death reigned. Okay, so here's this authority language again. If by the trespass of one man, death was in charge. Death reigned through that one man. How much more? That's a lovely phrase that keeps coming up in the Bible. How much more? Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, that's us, how much more will we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? On to verse 20. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as before, sin reigned in death. Now, is sin still reigning in death? No, it's not. So that grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, reigning is talking about being in charge, being over things, being uh, and having the ability to subdue hostile forces, the forces that are hostile to you. God is giving it to you to subdue those hostile forces and to reign. So before Jesus, sin and death were running things. After Jesus, now, for you, for me, grace and righteousness are in charge. We are in Christ. Therefore, reigning in life is the new and expected norm. And this isn't just that we throw off our bad life from the past. We throw off those bad habits that still linger on in our thoughts, our feelings, our our action. You know, Hebrews 12 talks about running the race, throwing off the the sin that so easily entangles. It is that, but please, that is not the sum total of your Christian life. This is the Christian life, that you run the race. Or with that that wonderful imagery of the, the record that was getting stuck, it's that God places tune through you. Another way of putting it is Ephesians 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has got a design for you. God has got a destiny, a purpose for you. We are his workmanship. That could be translated like poem or handiwork. You you are beautifully and wonderfully made, the the, the, the word of God tells us, for a purpose, to play God's tune. This is why we need to know that we're in charge, so that we can get on individually and corporately with what God wants us to do, with our destiny, the destiny for this church. You can reign. God has given you everything you need to reign. Now, the reality is, very often, if you're anything like me, I do not always have this perspective I don't always have that mindset. I don't always feel like I'm reigning. And even if we are, as we are over this weekend, beginning to grasp these truths, there is still a very real battle to be fought because Satan will continue to try and usurp our Christ-given authority and to take hold of what is no longer his unless we do something. 
unless we exercise the authority God has given us. Satan will be sitting pretty, sitting, I'm, I'm still here, I'm still squatting, I know I don't belong here, but nobody's kicking me out, nobody's stopping me from doing these things, nobody's telling me to go, nobody's bringing a higher authority, well, I'll just hang around and cause trouble then, as much as I like. Right, that battle is still there. We've got to exercise our authority. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says the thief, i.e. the thief who does not have legal authority. Right? Somebody breaks into your car, your house. Uh, if they've got a piece of paper authorising them, no, they haven't. They've no authority, but they're still doing it. Well, they're still trying to do it. The thief, talking about the enemy, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Just, just think of... Uh, what happens in Bolton sometimes, anyway, at uh, night time, somebody's um, coming home from the pub, had a bit much to, to drink, and uh, they say, oh, it might be some easy pickings along this road, uh, going along trying the car doors. In fact, um, the first evening that we arrived in Bolton, having trundled up the M1 and, and the M6, uh, we had a, a lovely friend uh, called Seamus come to sort of welcome us. Uh, bought, bought a drink for us and, and uh, we had a little chat for half an hour so I'll let you go now to, to unpack uh, I see. thanks for coming around Seamus see you soon and uh, he came back two minutes later oh my car's just been broken into <laughs> welcome to Bolton <laughs> but that's what thieves do they look for any open doors or, or windows and uh, Christians we can be so casual you know, I don't think I'll bother to look my the doors, the windows, my, my life, I won't, I won't check that that's firmly shut. What will happen? There's somebody looking for your open windows. There's somebody looking for your open doors. He's on your case. You've got to make sure that that thief does not get in where he no longer has authority. He doesn't have that authority, but he will still try unless you tell him to get lost, unless you exercise your higher authority. So in order to understand the authority that God gives us a little bit more, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's look at our authority from creation. We, we, we've heard somebody mention already on this weekend, we're created in the image of God. Now we were created, amongst other things, with authority and honour and freedom. So let's look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And again, let's pick out words which you might easily have skipped over, which talk about ruling. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures. So God created mankind in his own image. Now, there's lots of things in that, but we know, don't we, God is the ultimate authority. And he made us like him. So as well as many other things, he made us with authority. In the image of God, he created the male and female and blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. There's another authority word. There's another ruling and reigning word. Rule, rule over the fish in the sea, etc., etc. So God is, of course, still in charge of the whole universe. There isn't anything, not one atom, which he is not ruling over. But here on earth, he says, uh, I'm going to delegate my authority to you guys, to my creation, the ones who I have made in my image, the ones who were designed by the way they live and speak and pray to reflect that image, that authority of God. We are the implementers. Or you might say, we are God's enforcers. I like that phrase. We're God's enforcers of his heavenly rule and his heavenly authority. And you might sometime want to look at Psalm 8, where it uses a very similar language to that in Genesis chapter 1. But you might know the story. You do know the story. That wonderful freedom and honour and authority that we were created with, we foolishly gave it away. We were designed to implement God's delegated rule, but we gave it all away in Adam through our pride and our independence, and our sin. Who took it off us? Who happily received it, and has been trying to run the show ever since, if nobody stops him? Of course, it is the enemy, Satan, 
the devil. And if you never not- if you ever noticed in, in John 14:30, before uh, that, that uh, authoritative act of the crucifixion, Jesus acknowledged Satan as the prince of this world. John 14:30. And in 2 Corinthians, he's called the God of this age. It is acknowledged. There is a usurper, there is a thief, there is somebody who's trying to run the show. And think a little bit about um, Jesus' temptation when Satan came along. And uh, one of the things he said to Jesus, he said, all the domain, all the kingdoms of this world have been handed over to me and you can have them if you bow down to me. Have you ever noticed that Jesus didn't argue with that? He didn't say, no, 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 it's not yours. He just said, no, I'm not going to do that. Because we who had it, we who had this precious gift from God, this powerful gift from God, we gave it away. We gave it away to Satan. He said, it's been given to me. I can give it to anyone that I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. So God delegated his authority to us, and we, like the story in Genesis of Esau, foregoing his birthright for a bowl of stew, just something to satisfy his stomach, gave it away. And that's what happened to us. So if, if it had been Rob and Eve, I would have done the same thing. If it had been you know, Adam and Helen, she would have done the same thing. We're all the same nature. We gave it away, that most precious thing. So how could we ever hope to gain it back? Remember, it, it was death that was reigning, it said. Death was reigning. How, how could we grab that back? He is a powerful foe. We're no longer in charge. We no longer have the upper hand. On the contrary, we're now under the rule of sin and death. But the wonderful big story of the Bible is that all along, God had this master plan. And that authority that we so foolishly gave away is restored in Christ. And you can say hallelujah at that point. I'm half African by now. <laughs> so even in Genesis, even before all this happened, in Genesis chapter 3, God was speaking to Satan and looking ahead to that time when Jesus would come and die on the cross. And he says, I will put enmity, can't say that, enmity, can we think of a better word than that in English? Enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, that is the woman's offspring, which is looking ahead to Jesus, will crush your head. Satan's authority. Yeah, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. There it is, right from the start. You foul it up, guys but I'm going to make sure there's one coming who will put everything right. You know, when you stamp on somebody's head, there's not much left of them. <laughs> That's what God has given us to do in Jesus. So at the cross, a man died. Man gave it away. A man, Christ Jesus, but a man without sin, won it back. You see, that's why, as well as Jesus being fully divine. It's, that's why it's so important that Jesus was fully human, so he could fully and accurately represent you back to God. So he could fully and for all time redeem what you had lost. As a man, he paid the price for our rebellion, conquering death, taking back the keys of authority from Satan. See, Jesus is not this picture that we see in, in Catholic images, dying on the cross now. That was, and that was very real, but that is not where Jesus is now. That is not the picture that Bible paints for us. You know that. What, what picture do we see now? For example, Revelation 1.18. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever. And here's another word of authority. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Or Revelation 3, 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. Now David, okay, that's referencing to King David in the Old Testament. So it's talking about a royal reign, a kingly reign. Jesus is the conquering king and he holds the keys. What he opens, no one can shut. 
and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, you've got your own place now that you meet in on midweek and Sundays and everything, so, so have we, but, you know, you used to live in rented places, and uh, the, one of the places that we first met in, uh, yeah, you two were still with us, it was a place called Whitefield in North Manchester, we were both in small church plants, and uh, we'd all turn up at the prescribed time, you know, the advance party to ready to get in, in the building, and, and sometimes, oh no, the caretaker's not turned up. We're all waiting outside, and it's always raining in the north, you know, so we're getting wet and cold, and the caretaker finally comes along, and he gets out this, this biggest bunch of keys you've ever seen in your life. All right, keys are authority. There was no way we were getting in that building without the keys. Keys are indicative of authority. That's why Jesus talks about keys. He says, look, I've got the keys. I've got the royal keys. I have won it back for you. And therefore, we, made in his image, made like him, we have the right in Jesus to regain our authority and to live in it and walk in it once more because Jesus won it back on the cross. We've, we've had reference already to Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15, just abbreviated. I think it's just the first verse I've got here. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. He has disarmed them. They had the keys. He has got them back. So Satan is still a powerful foe. He should not be underestimated. But in Jesus, we can now once more rule with authority, as we were always created to do. This is your natural state, to rule and reign in life with authority. And what does Jesus do with the keys? This is so important because we, we understand, you know, even though our understanding always needs to be, be increased, we understand that Jesus is the all-powerful one and, and Jesus has got it. But what did Jesus do with the keys? He said in Luke 10, 19, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Matthew 28, familiar words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me metaphor for I'm now holding the keys, what does he then say? So therefore you go. Right? It's restored to how it was. The king of the universe has got the keys back and given them to the people that they were originally designed for. You and me. Oh, this is good news. This is really, really good news. But the application of it you see, we've got to apply it. <laughs> this is not some theory. We've got to work out what this means. It does not mean, I wish it did, that everything just works out automatically. Right? We've already seen the answer to this. It's no, I, I referred earlier that things like personal holiness, growing the church, uh, reaching out to the community, communities, these are battlegrounds. Satan hates it when you say no to sin. Satan hates it when you refrain from saying something negative to, to somebody in the church and instead you speak grace. He hates that. He will oppose any new venture. He will particularly oppose planting any new church, any new ministry. He will oppose good relationships. He will oppose good leadership. He will oppose purity of heart and mind. These are the battlegrounds where we need to learn how to exercise our authority. He will try every trick in the book. He will try to distract us with worldly attractions. Uh, he will try to distract us with sort of unbalanced theology. There is no good thing which he will not attempt to distort or corrupt. So as we seek to say, okay, Lord, so what does it look like to walk in this authority? We, we need, first of all, the insight and the discernment to know what the enemy is up to. This was re referred to this afternoon. I think it was, if you don't know who your enemy is, then you, how can you beat him? If you don't know what the enemy is up to, you know, in any battle, any battle, you know, in any place around the world today, half of, of the battle is knowing what the enemy is up to. So you know how to, uh, to counterattack, you know how to protect yourself. We are pretty slack sometimes at being aware and discerning. And, and discernment is not just wisdom and experience. Okay? Discernment is a gift of the spirit. Yes. Sometimes you just sense there's something wrong here. I need to be wary. 
And my logical mind in that situation says, what are you talking about? That person looks completely normal to me. But something inside me is going, hmm, something not quite right about that. Uh, so many years ago when we were in the middle of planting the, the church, um, there was a lady who just sort of randomly turned up um, one Sunday morning and she sort of looked very sweet and sort of normal. I think she was probably getting on for 40 or, or, or something like that. And uh, I'd not met her before, just saw her across the room. And what I now recognise as the gift of discernment immediately made me think there's something wrong there. Watch out. Watch out for that person. And, and it came to light probably a few months later that she was living a completely double life, uh, you know, sleeping around. And, and I knew nothing of her, but praise God, the Holy Spirit said, careful, careful there. The enemy's at work. Be alert. So first of all, we've, we've got to pray, Lord, give me insight. Give me wisdom. Give me discernment to, to recognize what the enemy is doing. But we also then, of course, need to apply what Jesus has done, what Jesus has finished, what Jesus has won, to apply that victory of the cross to our lives by faith. In other words, to take back this particular ground, whatever that ground might be, that the enemy has stolen, which is our ground. But we don't say, Lord, please, would you get it back for me? Because he is saying, take it back. That is the key difference. It's not wrong to pray for something, you know, to pray for a person. But God, because of the way he's made things, because he's set it up that we're created to be like him and therefore to exercise authority, he says, I want you to do it. I don't want you to be like little children where you're, you're having to do up your two-year-old shoelaces. You know, you don't do up your 20-year-old shoelaces. Well, it's Velcro anyway these days, isn't it? But, you know, right, that wouldn't be right. Well, in the same way, God doesn't want to do everything for you because he loves you so much that he wants you to grow up to spiritual maturity. Yeah. So he wants you to learn to pray and to exercise authority. He wants you to learn how to come against the enemy. And on a weekend like this, we are becoming better equipped, yes, to recognise what the enemy is doing and to repel his work, knowing who we are. We had um, time of prayer and fasting, it was probably three years ago now, something like this, in early September. I know you have some fasting weeks as well. And uh, we were in a a fairly ordinary prayer meeting, really, not not that big a prayer meeting. And um, the Lord often speaks to me through, through pictures that come in my mind. And uh, I, I saw this, this lovely park scene, you know, it's like sort of high park in London or something, and, you know, lake, the weather was nice, you could tell it was the south of England. And, um, uh, you know, people were enjoying picnics, children were playing, oh, isn't it lovely, this is, this is really nice. And, and then in, the, in this picture, I suddenly saw myself like praying a sort of commanding prayer, like, a, like an army sergeant major might bark out an order or something like that. And, and I don't know the exact words that I, I spoke, but I was commanding something to be revealed. And, and it, was, ooh, it was a bit creepy, really, because from behind every person in this lovely, pretty scene stepped out a sort of shadowy figure of the spiritual forces of darkness that were trying to gain footholds in those people's lives. And, uh, uh, and, and I, I shared that picture, and to my astonishment, somebody in the prayer meeting immediately fell on the floor and, and started manifesting a demon. Um, and actually, because they were wanting to go on with God, it was really easy. Helen was there. Helen sorts that sort of stuff out. Um, uh, <laughs> Helen prayed with this lady. And actually, I'm not sure that anybody else in the room even realised that this person was manifesting a demon. It was nothing scary just told the enemy to get lost because he no longer had any right to be in that person's life. Um, or to give you a, a corporate I- example, um, three years ago, I think, something like, like that, same sort of time maybe, um, we'd, you know, I know some of the troubles that you, you've had. I don't know really many details at all, but we had terrible trouble with a, a young man um, who was causing huge amount of trouble in our church and it, it was very clear, although he needed to repent, that there were very big spiritual forces using that person. And he wanted to bring the church down in particular. He wanted to bring me down. And, and, and I think if I, 
if the Lord hadn't helped us, and uh, if I hadn't had such good support from our eldership team, you know, I mean, I was really heading for a nervous breakdown. It was, I, was, I was not coping with it. And Joseph and Lillian were great in helping us with, with that as well. But we'd, we'd come through the worst of that. Um, we'd, we'd taken him out of employment, but he was hanging around on the edge of the church. And by that point, we, we were recognising much more the, the spiritual dimension of it. We were pretty ignorant when we went through most of it, but praise God we had the Bible and we had prayer. <laughs> I think the process would have been a lot shorter and, and easier if we'd have realised some of the spiritual dynamics earlier on. Um, but uh, by that point, we, we, we did realise, uh, but he was still sort of hanging around, even though he didn't have any, any more influence or not too much influence, but we thought, this, is, this isn't good. And so Joseph helped us, just got us, um, it was at our devoted conference, got our, our four elders to, you know, three at the time, I think it was, that were uh, together. And, and again, you know, reminded us of Ephesians 6, you know, it's not about this young man, it's about the powers of darkness. And he said, you know, you're the authority over this church. You, you must no longer allow this spirit to be operating in your church. And we just prayed very simple but faithful prayers, um, commanding uh, that, that evil influence to, to leave us and, and, and uh, saying, no, this belongs to God, this church. And, and we are going to look after and rule uh, over, over this church as God wants us to. And uh, we didn't know what would happen. Um, in our case, two weeks later, this man, uh, young man, left not just the church, but left the town. And I'm absolutely convinced that was an answer to prayer. Totally convinced. Totally convinced. So whether it's something uh, individual, whether it's something in your family, uh, whether it's something in the church, even our town sometimes, our communities, we, we've got to take that ground. We've got to exercise our authority in order to take back the particular situations or particular relationships which the enemy has been squatting in. Now, got a little bit more to say. I want to talk about what the Bible calls about strongholds because this is often what these battlegrounds look like. So I would describe what the Bible means as a stronghold is this. Any pattern of thoughts or feelings or behaviour where the rule of Christ has not yet been properly applied or areas of our lives, our relationships or our church where the enemy is still squatting and needs to be evicted. So he's sitting there in his nice little castle, in his nice little stronghold. All right, I'm here until somebody gets rid of me. That's his approach. And it's any pattern of thoughts or feelings or behaviour. So what does 2 Corinthians 10 tell us about strongholds? The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world we fight with. On the contrary... These weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. It doesn't even say attack the strongholds, make a little dent. Demolish strongholds. <laughs> we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Okay, here's this language again. We take something captive. Who takes something captive? The person in charge. The person with the greater authority and power. We are in charge. We have authority. God says to us, go and take that captive. You have the authority to do that. So we probably all unwittingly, sometimes knowingly, brought strongholds with us into the Christian life when we were born again. And in my opinion... This can be any combination of a number of things. It could be some physical ailment. It could be, uh, it could be some mental thing, uh, you know, a pattern of thinking. Uh, it could be an emotional thing that uh, we, we could be sort of trapped in a, a certain way of responding. So, for example, uh, you know, somebody who, who has experienced rejection uh, very, very frequently will... Uh, behave in such a way that other people will continue to reject them. You know, there's a pattern, there's a stronghold, there's a, a way of acting and responding. So it could be physical, mental, emotional, it could be a spiritual thing. It could be, for example, a defective worldview that we, we, we just see the world in a certain way, which is not the biblical way of looking at it. 
Uh, it could be um, habitual thought patterns, habitual emotional reactions that, that actually, you know, we, we've just thought, well, that's me. <laughs> that's the way I am. And if you heard some of Helen's testimony uh, last night, you'll hear a brief, uh, brief version of it Sunday morning. You know, when God demolished some strongholds in her life, she was saying th- to, to me things like, is, is it normal to feel like this? Because for the rest of my life, I felt something else. And suddenly I'm feeling different and I'm trying to make sense of it. Okay, so there was a stronghold in her. It could be persistent sin that needs to be broken. It could be, as we, we've heard, generational influences. You'll hear that again in Telen's testimony tomorrow if you haven't heard that. So, so anything in our emotions and our thinking, our actions, which, which is locking us in. And, you know, of course, what the enemy does, he doesn't come along and say, oh, you know, Rob, you, you had a bit of a tricky childhood. Uh, you know, you had this happen to you. And you've got a very difficult family situation. I'll just leave you alone for a bit. I can see you having a bit of a tough time. Is that what he does? No, he sees that you're down and he comes and puts the boot in. That's what he tries, and do, tries to do. So, you know, we've got these things here. We don't need the enemy to create strongholds. We're very good at creating strongholds by ourselves. But sometimes, you know, if, if something is strong enough or we give ourselves to something enough, it's, it seems to me like there's another spiritual layer that comes along that, that locks us in that then needs to be, to be dealt with. See, I, I think that what the enemy does basically is he takes advantages of the weakness and the sinfulness and the vulnerability that is already in us. You know, who, who amongst us would say, oh yeah, once I was born again, I suddenly became perfect. No, we don't say that, do we? You know, we know we're still in this process of transformation. So it's in those areas where have yet to be fully transformed that the enemy will try and stop you from being transformed. We'll try and keep you as you are. We'll try and uh, make you think that the devil you know is the better than the devil you don't know. If that's an appropriate phrase in this context, I don't know. But you understand what I mean by that proverb. It's more comfortable to stay as we are than to be challenged to change. The enemy says, yeah, just stay as you are. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. He will do everything he can to stop this process of transformation to try and prevent you being changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. So if Satan can't turn you away from God altogether, if he can't turn you, cause you to turn your back on the church and on God, what's the next best thing? He will try and do everything he can to stop you being fruitful, to try and stop you from inheriting what is yours, to try and stop that process of transformation into the likeness of Christ. And the Bible calls that strongholds. You're stuck. It's a stronghold of one sort or another. And they will stay there unless they are specifically recognized, addressed, and demolished by some, sort of, by some combination of revelation, prayer, declaration, sometimes deliverance, and persistent obedience to God. So let me just give you some examples of strongholds. So when I was first, first married, it was... We had a very interesting time when we were going out and when we were engaged. It was um, quite a few storm clouds about. So uh, Helen um, was very good at communicating. I wasn't. (laughs) Helen was very emotional, needed lots of reassurance. I was pretty locked up emotionally. And uh, I I told you last week that I loved you. You Isn't that enough? You know, that sort of (laughs) ignorant sort of man thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and then what would happen when, when, so Helen was trying to sort of like push me, provoke is perhaps too strong a word, but sort of push me to try and get me to show some response and, and some sort of reaction. And, and I couldn't cope with that because of my personality and because of my history. And it would have the opposite effect to what she wanted. I would just shut down and back off and, and almost couldn't look at her and couldn't, and couldn't say something. And that really made her angry. <laughs> But it was, a, it was the right sort of anger. So, so in, in that case, you know, I, I think that was a habitual emotional stronghold. I would describe that as. I, I needed to, first of all, recognise what was happening. And this is the challenge of being married or having somebody who is a closer friend to you. They, they, uh, they can help you to see yourself 
um, in, in a more accurate light. So I needed to see the root of this. I prayed through, and I, and I realized that I'd, I'd had a, a history of different people in my family and actually in my workplace as well, as well of sort of uh, dominating um, sort of over-emotional people that I, I just wasn't very equipped to handle, or maybe my parents hadn't taught me to handle that very well, and, and I just shut down because that was the only way that I, I could handle it. And I had to learn a new way of thinking. I had to learn a new way of feeling. I had to new, if I was serious about this marriage, you know, I mean, this was on our honeymoon. You know, <laughs> we, we actually, we went to Malta on the honeymoon, and then this year we were celebrating 30 years, and uh, we decided to go back to Malta for the first time. And um, it was a lot happier the second time there, wasn't it? <laughs> But I, that, that's, that, that stronghold had to be demolished. Yeah. Okay, so that was a combination of my personality uh, and, and my, my upbringing and my present circumstances. It was in the emotional realm, but it was not enabling, it was preventing me from loving Helen as he needed to be loved. It needed to be demolished. Um, if I could talk just a little bit what Helen said in her, her testimony. Uh, about, about Helen had extraordinary fears. We, we all have fears, don't worry. <laughs> um, but Helen had a, a fairly extreme upbringing, and uh, there was, there was a definitely, on top of like, natural human emotions, like an additional demonic chain coming down through her family, um, which, despite her, her persistence walking with God, I mean, she's been faithful walking with God, doing the things that we must do, feeding off the word of God, you know, praying, etc., etc. But as she put it herself, you know, two steps forward, one step back, she just needed setting free. She, need, she still needed to keep with, with feeding on God, but she needed setting free. Uh, human discipline and human effort in that particular situation was not enough. Or... Um, very similar to the situation that we had uh, in our church with this, this young man that uh, I described. We were, um, shared a bit of our testimony and we were invited to a church up in, in Cumbria, an hour or so away from, from where we live, where they'd had a much, much more serious situation of the same nature. And um, uh, these, these leaders and their, their wives, the key people in the church, the way I would describe it, they just felt under the cosh. They felt battered. They felt battered by everything that had happened, emotionally battered. And they'd, they'd, again, they'd, they'd handled things in a godly manner. But, you know, there was, um, there was something where they needed to take a corporate stand, rather like we had done a few years earlier with our own, own eldership team. And, and stand and declare against the spiritual authorities which were trying to keep that church in, in a state of, of bleeding and bruising. And they needed to take, in their case, practical steps to re-establish godly, accountable, servant-hearted leadership. They needed to take steps to get rid of the evil that was in the church, that, that Satan had been behind, and they needed to take steps to re-establish a godly model of, of leadership. And actually, I've been waiting for a point to share this picture, and I think I should share it now, that, that when we first arrived on, on Friday uh, in the, the worship time, I felt the Lord um, draw to me the story of the Good Samaritan. But a particular bit of that story. So, okay, so this is when Jesus told his parable. This is not the point that he was making. This is a, a particular extract that I'm giving a prophetic application to. And what I felt the Lord saying was that um, to look at this aspect of the story where this man was robbed. Okay, this innocent man about his business, going on his journey, doing good, was robbed by people who had no right to beat him up and no right to steal his, his clothes and his belongings. But that's what happened to him. And he was left bleeding and dying uh, in, in the gutter. And, and somebody came along and nursed him back to health. It says in the story that he put oil and wine on his wounds. So those would have been like antiseptic things in those days. So, so medicine, if you like, was administered to the wounds. And the person took care of him. Rather like the parable of the lost, lost sheep, where it says he puts the, finds the sheep and puts it on his shoulders. He says he puts a man on his own donkey. And he takes him to an inn and, and he says, you know, take care of him. Whatever it costs, 
I, I will pay you. And I, and I felt the Lord saying that, I don't know if all of you feel this, or some of you, or to what degree you might feel this, but I feel him saying that you've been robbed. You've had someone attack you, had no right to attack you, had no authority to attack you. And it was a terrible thing they did. You were going along your business of building the church and extending the kingdom of God. And the way things are in this world, you've been attacked and you've been robbed. And I didn't see you like a man, actually. I saw you like a beautiful bride lying, bleeding and, and bruised in the side of the road. But Jesus is coming along. And Jesus stops. And Jesus sees you. And Jesus takes you on his shoulders. And Jesus applies oil and wine. He, he does things that no amount of, 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 of humanity can do. He, he applies that oil and wine of healing by his power, the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, set in, in, you know, in this context, whatever it is, setting free, encouraging, whatever it might be. He heals your wounds. But, but also, I, I've, I felt the prophetic application of this, which is, is so much needs to come hand in hand. He has given and is giving and will give you people to care for you. Because when God does almost anything, it's through people. <laughs> How do you know you're loved? It's through people. And, and God wants you to know as a church that you are so dearly loved. And he wants to give you people who will love you. And, and who will give themselves to you to heal you and to restore you so that you can get back on your donkey, <laughs> so that you can get back on your journey, so that you can do everything that the Lord has called you to do. And I've just got to pray at this point. Lord, I, I just speak that. Lord God, your, your wonderful compassion and love. I thank you, Jesus. You have stopped here at Crawley Community Church. You, you have seen the bruising. You understand the hurt. You feel compassion, Lord. And Lord, I, I speak that Holy Spirit healing into minds, into bodies, into emotions, into uh, relationships, Lord God. Lord, where there's been uh, a breakdown of trust or where, where there's been a, a, a loss of hope, oh God, I, we pray, pour in your oil and your wine to heal, Lord God, to restore. And, and I pray, Lord God, keep giving wonderful people, Lord God, whether you know, it's in their new ground family or wherever it might be from, Lord God, people who can come and love this lovely people and just tell them, you're doing all right. <laughs> God is still with you. God is still for you. God is caring for you. God will help you to get on your journey. He knows what this robber has done. But he is undoing the work of the enemy, and he is restoring you. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you just minister that to people now, Lord God? Minister to that, Lord God. I'll just encourage you, in, in, if, you know, just in whatever way uh, you feel you might need some restoration, just to receive that from the Lord now. Just to receive that. He is with you. He loves you deeply. He loves you dearly. Oh, Jesus, set them back on their journey, Lord. Set them back on their journey. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me just finish off. So where have we got to? Jesus has won back this authority for us. We're understanding more the battle. We're discerning things. We're, we're learning how to exercise the weapons that he has given us to demolish strongholds. We're evicting the enemy who has been squatting with no right to be there. He will not go meekly. You need to know that. He's going to challenge it. He's going to see if you mean it. You've got to persist. Yeah. Plenty of parables about persisting in prayer, for example. Right? Ask, seek, knock. Jesus talked about it. The tent says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, Keep on knocking. He will challenge your progress. He will say to you, no, nothing's going to change. Yeah, look at that, what just happened again. Ugh, no, no hope. He will challenge your thinking. He will challenge your actions. You've got to stand firm. 
you've got to keep going. I mean, personally, you know, with things that I personally battle with, I make sure I learn off by heart scriptures that are the medicine for me in that situation. And I'll go out for a, a walk and I will shout them out loud when hopefully nobody is listening to me and I'll declare them to the heavens and declare them to myself. We've got to be serious about this. So circumstances might not immediately change, but when we know we've got the keys, really, everything has changed. Everything has changed. So we can say, no, I will not believe this lie the enemy is saying to me. The Bible does say this. Jesus has done that. This is who I am. We will no longer be intimidated by the enemy. That is a key key word. We are intimidated sometimes by the enemy and by the people that he sends to carry out his work. It's all a counterfeit of what God is doing. God is in charge and he sends us to carry out his work. Well, that's what the enemy tries to copy. He tries to spoil it and disrupt it and he sends his agents to try and carry out his work. But we know we've got the keys And we need not and we must not any longer be intimidated. We must exercise our God-given authority to bring peace and order. This is what Jesus said. This is what I'm going to close with. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And there's very similar words in Matthew 18 where the context there is prayer and church discipline. When you agree, it will be done for you because you are God's agents. You are God's enforcers. You are carrying out. You are exercising his rule and reign on this earth so that you can run the race, so that God can play his tune through you, so that you can go on your God-given journey again. This is our calling. This is our privilege. Let us rise up and stir ourselves and stir one another to be all that God has created us to be. There is no better way to live. Shall we stand? I'm going to need a bit of help from you guys now. (laughs)